Hi, everybody. Mike here. Welcome to the Vox Podcast. So glad you're with us. Thanks for tuning in. Got a very special guest coming in live from Kansas City, Missouri. My -hmm. friend, Tyler Chinesky. Say hello, Tyler. What's up, Vox community? And you can hear the Vox community shouting back to you. What's up, Tyler? Tyler, so Tyler and I have become friends through a series of mutual friends and uh, and also through a common love of fashion mm-hmm. um, uh, and uh, and all things fashionable. And so when I told uh, told Tyler, <laughs> hey, uh, what's your Skype ID? Um, Tyler said, I don't have one. Uh, and I thought, oh, well, you're behind. Uh, Tyler, really? You're a millennial. You're 28, right? Yes. And you don't have Skype. And and you're like, no, I actually use other and better things. So Tyler had to download Skype and learn Skype. I didn't realize Skype was was old, but oh, I Mike, guess it is. Throwing it back on Skype right now, and I had to get a Windows laptop for it, and <laughs> I used Internet Explorer to download and. <laughs> We can aim after this. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Yes, aim. I forgot. So, so yes, we are on our, our AOL fan page. Um, <laughs> for those of you who are familiar with that joke. Uh, anyway, Tyler put the mill in millennial, and he's got his uh, his glasses on. You were born what year? I do, I can't do the math right now. That's 90, 990. Oh, my. 990. Oh my goodness. Okay. So let's see. I was 71. So that's, that puts me, I don't know if my math is correct, but that puts me as slightly older than you. Just a bit. Just a little bit. But you, know, you couldn't tell by looking at us. Exactly right. Exactly <laughs> right. Um, so Tyler, I am so excited. What, what are you doing in Kansas city uh, these days? Well, I, uh, work as a pastor at a church slash art gallery in Kansas City. Uh, So that's like the day job. I love it. But I'm also just living life in KC. I'm seeing theater. I'm going to the poetry readings. I'm at your TJ Maxx looking for a good deal. Um, So a really multidimensional person um, who pastors primarily, but is also, you know, a connoisseur, a connoisseur of fine culture. I am trying to live that, you know, fine culture life on the associate pastor budget. And so that's a whole, that's a whole struggle. And, and it is well known uh, for you international listeners that Kansas City, Missouri is, is a, um, a center of progressive fashion, thought, and uh, art. And so it the is. The Paris of the Plains. Did you know this? <laughs> no. Is that, is yeah. that a, is that a thing? It's. I heard it from a dear friend once, and I'm trying to live into it. I believe it's true. Okay. Um, but they, yeah, the center of the Paris of the plains. Called, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now that's something I did not expect. So coming at you live from the Paris uh, on the plains, it's our friend Tyler, pastor Tyler. Um, what what what's a bit of your story, if you don't mind, kind of telling our telling our listeners that led you. Uh, to become a, at least uh, for part of your time, um, a pastoral sort of person. What uh, What's the story that got you to that point? Yeah. Well, I think in many ways that story began when I was adopted at birth. Whoa. Uh, 
Christian parents. That's right. So I uh, know how much I cost. I was like, I always tell my parents the best money they ever spent, uh, <laughs> but adopted at birth to parents who had tried seven years, I believe, to have a baby of their own, wow. could not have this child. Um, and so through all kinds of a series of events, finally, were able to uh, to purchase me. Yeah. And in their journey of not having a child, they had been praying. They were Jesus followers themselves. So they're praying, they're asking God for a child. Um, and in many ways, I became their their miracle baby. Uh, they're prayed for person. You know, we've hoped for this day. We've waited for this day. Now you've arrived. And they bought me and I was the only one they ever bought. So wow. adopted, then only child. And that was a yeah, in many ways, a great childhood for me. Grew up in, you know, their church, a great church, our church, I should say. Oh, in um, Kansas City. We were in we were in northern Indiana at the time. Oh, okay. So, uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, if you're aware of the second scrolling metropolis. Second only, them. second only to Kansas City, Missouri. Yes. Really, really only is, yeah, great culture in Fort Wayne too. Yeah. Um, but I so that's where we're growing up. It is the Tuscany church. of the Midwest. <laughs> It, it, it really it's known for its like dense concentration of chain restaurants oh perfect so if okay. you want to see an applebee's yes like, what you know if you haven't been in a while to an ihop or something like that go to fort wayne okay. they're all there excellent so i'm living there i'm growing up there in the church with my parents uh who love jesus and are trying to introduce me to jesus and that's Excellent. I mean, that's where maybe seeds of faith were planted. But how old got- how old were you when you found out you were adopted? Oh, my parents always told me. So that okay. you got to know this. So this is the the narrative I grew up with because this will play in later. So it was always your God's gift to us, and here's how we got you. I mean, and so I've always had a very pro adoption view. We thank God for my birth mom. We're so glad that she would, you know think to give her child to a family that could support them well. And this is how God brought you into our lives. Wow. And we're so grateful. And you're here with a purpose. And we know God put you in our family. So this is like the narrative, the deep beliefs that form my self-conception is God had a plan for me. He put me in this family. My family loves me. And here we are, just the three of us and the cat. I should mention our cat, <laughs> Nisi, or my mom would be upset because that was always my sister. Um, so three humans and a cat made this family, but together, yeah, you know, just living life in Fort Wayne um, at at this great church that we were at with good friends and stuff there. Oh, that's amazing. So that's, yeah, that's the beginnings. That's where it all began. And then, um, oh, go, go, keep going. Well, no, no, I... It's your turn, Mike. <laughs> okay. Well, I I grew up in Mansfield, Ohio. No, um, uh, there. So so as as an only child, as I mean, very deliberately chosen. I mean, who gets to say that? Like we yes. chose you. Um, what was there any um, f- during that time? Was there any sort of searching for birth uh, birth parents? Uh, any wondering kind of where I fit? Was that message enough or yeah. were you still restless? In many ways for me, that story of being selected and chosen was enough. I would say, honestly, it's been my mom who's been more interested in looking for birth parents, mainly because she works in healthcare. And so she's wondering what what I've got going on in these jeans, you know, um, and not literally the jeans I'm wearing, uh, but is there, you know, genetically um, anything happening in a family? So she's been interested in family medical history, but gosh, by and large, 
I did feel real secure and at home in my adoptive family. And I haven't really had the desire even since to look for birth family, birth parents, um, even though it's something every so often, again, mom will bring up yeah. as just, hey, your birthday's coming. Do you want dad and I to hire the investigator this year? Um, oh, wow. And I said, no, we can wait. <laughs> That's excellent. Wow. what It sounds like great parents, dude. Unbelievable. What, what was the faith journey like during this time for you? Seeds of faith planted early, but what? how did that come to bear fruit? Seeds early. So then I loved our church. So our church uh, was actually pretty influenced by like old gospel music. So, nice. I mean, just rocking uh, kind of gospel stuff. Andre Crouch. If, wow. I don't know if you know, but just like, oh, oh yeah. So that is the songs my soul sings. Um, so we're influenced <laughs> by gospel music, uh, but then also a pretty performative space, a lively theatrical space in in the church. So honestly, I just remember church being a big place, a wonderful place, a vibrant place. There's lots going on. And of course, that's um, attractive to this young theater kid at heart. I totally am eating it up. And then, you know, it's not long until, you know, you hear enough about Jesus dying for your sins that you say, gosh, I want, I want that to be true, or I want to make sure that I'm right with God. And so, man, er, very early in life, I would say that I'm, you know, in Sunday schools, I'm learning about who Jesus is. I'm excited about that. Um, I mean, honestly, probably for as long as I can remember, I don't have early memories of not being aware awesome. of Jesus or aware of, uh, yeah, kind of the, the story, the message that we'd call the gospel. And that journey from now, from then until now has been completely smooth, right? No bumps. Yeah. <laughs> no hiccups. Oh, man. I was going to say I wish, but maybe I don't wish because honestly, it's been probably a good thing to learn from a lot of the crap that's happened between then and now. Yeah. Um, I know there's some things I wish wouldn't be part of the story, but oh, man, yep, lots of hiccups along the way. Uh, so I am growing up in this church. I'm loving it. Things are great. Um, going well on the surface, let's say. But underneath, yeah. um, particularly in my interior interior world, uh, at first, I'm realizing that stuff isn't quite right or that maybe there's something going wrong with me. And here's what I mean by that. Um, so I, like many folks do around kind of high school age, you know, we're hitting the puberty. I'm getting all hormonal. Um, <laughs> I'm feeling the feelings. I'm sweating the stinky sweat now. You know, I've graduated <laughs> uh, to that world. But as that's happening, I'm becoming more and more aware that I am not like my classmates. Um, I mean, not like some others and that it's like, holy cow, I think I'm gay. You know, and I wouldn't have language for that at the time. Yeah. Um, but I do have journals from that time. It's fascinating. Only children um, get really good at kind of spending time by themselves. Uh, so <laughs> I've been a big journaler. You know, I've got a rich inner life. I'm comfortable by myself. Um, but, but during that time, it's like, holy cow, what's going on? And so I have, you know, journal entries and prayers and it's just like, oh Lord, you know, initially, I mean, very much so it's just like, Lord, change this. Oh my gosh, uh, this is so wrong. I know it's so wrong. Um, so there's a lot of that happening at like maybe middle school thinking, middle school, high school youth retreats. Was that, um, was it ever, ever talked about in the church? Oh no. Okay. Oh, no. So how did you know uh, it was wrong? You know, that's a great question. Um, I feel like, I don't want to say you just do, but maybe being in 
some of the, let's say, broadly evangelical conservative circles that we're in, um, maybe from the fact that it's not talked about, and then the fact that it was, I mean, I wouldn't say we were ever part of a church that was preaching, you know, against gay folks or saying mean things about LGBT people, although I know that exists, but that wasn't necessarily our church, but maybe it was the lack of it ever being mentioned and uh-huh. sort of the shameful silence around it Got that it. helped me know that when I was young. I, again, I, I can't say for sure. That's a great question, Mike. Oh, no, I, I, I'm, I, I, I'm absolutely fascinated. Uh, yeah. I can't imagine the journey. I just yeah, can't just imagine silence it. silence can speak so loudly, you know? Yeah. I really do wonder if it was just some general silence. I mean, I can think of, you know, maybe growing up, so there weren't a lot of gay characters or stuff on television, but mm-hmm. maybe if there was a nightline or something about it or i don't trying to think what even news events would have been happening at the time but maybe my parents changed the channel or something uh but less out of again i don't think it was ooh gross but more just like oh we want to you know protect or keep our child from being aware of this just yet but maybe that all that coming together it just becomes so clear that it's like oh man this isn't this isn't you know yeah uh, and this isn't something worth kind of discussing or speaking about. So yeah, it really, I mean, it really was unaddressed in our house, Mm. um, barring a few awkward moments where it would come to the fore, uh, with my parents. And even then it was very, um, I mean, we've always had a pretty open relationship, even as you can tell from talking so openly about the adoption or other things. Um, but yeah, even in those moments, I think it's like, we address it now we've addressed it now we're not. And we're out you know? Yeah. Uh, no, so I that, think, I think a lot of the, uh, us parents are that way where it's, yeah. Yep. It's easy to say, yep. Check, check that box done. And it's a church. Moment, let's move on. Yeah. Right? Thank God that's over. Um, yes. what was happening as, so your faith was developing and, and then, and then you have this, this other, uh, part of you that, uh, is emerging as well. How how are you beginning to put those uh, pieces together? Yeah, not well. <laughs> so I book that I think is so helpful for folks trying to understand, particularly um, the adolescent journey of LGBT folks, and probably to be more specific, it's written by like a gay man. It probably is more helpful in understanding specifically um, the journey of maybe gay men, but it's a book called Velvet Rage um, by a psychologist, Alan Downs. So a, um, you know, not a theistic framework that he's writing from, but a good framework, a great psychological framework. And something he said has helped me understand what was happening to me then. So Downs says that um, homophobia is the fear of being gay. Shame is the fear of being unlovable. And I know, oh, Mike, I know. Yeah. And and he says that both need to be addressed. So from his psychological perspective, both need to be addressed uh, in the life of gay people in order for there to be health and functioning and to move on from negative coping skills that he says LGBT people learn so early in life Hmm. uh, because they feel shame at a young age and they feel the pressure to hide who they are. He's like, we need to address, sure, both homophobia. So the fear of, oh, being gay, this is, you know, weird, this is different, um, but also this shame piece. And so I will say, man, when I first read that in the Velvet Rage, so Alan Downs book, I was, um, you know, I was just floored. 
And that shame piece, I can totally resonate with. I mean, that was probably the outcome of my first attempt to merge faith and sexuality. It was just like, holy cow, what do I do in light of this? Well, this is awful. Uh, I'm unlovable. This is shameful. I need to perform. I need to achieve. I need to excel. Um, So I, I mean, I did that. I had four goals going into high school. I wanted to be a valedictorian, student body president, homecoming king, and prom king. Boom. And I lost prom king to someone who will go unnamed on the Vox podcast, just in case he's listening. Uh, but <laughs> if the Carroll High School yeah, alums are here, you know who our prom king was. Um, but I mean, everything else, it's really like, I'm going to achieve. I'm going to achieve. Uh, I want to excel. I want to um, put on the good show. Yeah. Um, be the star everything to prove again, probably mostly to myself that it's like you are uh, lovable. You're uh, yeah, you're worthy of people's attention and care. Um, and in the way you're going to do that, Tyler, in light of all that's going on is to perform both for classmates, teachers, parents. And I think for the Lord as well. I mean, it's weird to think through even some of those, especially teenager days, but there was this odd desire that even though faith was so frustrating to me, I also wanted to like volunteer and be doing church things even for a bit. Like, isn't that weird? And, and I'm so grateful you're willing to, to share this because I mean, adolescence is insane enough. Obviously I survived it myself. I have two children in the middle of it and, and just re kind of living it again through them. And so I just can't imagine um, the wrestling that must have been going on as you're trying to put all this together in silence, right? You're yes. not getting any direction from the church. You're not getting really any direction from your family. Um, when, how old were you when you first considered telling somebody about this? Ooh, man, I'm kind of. I have journals. I could probably find the exact date. I think it's like, a, isn't that nuts? Oh, oh that's, a, that's awesome. So these journals are one. I've got this buddy, Josh Jackson, that it's just like, man, if I ever, you know, whatever, crash a car, die. I used to say this to him at IU. It's like, you have got to burn these journals and keep them from my parents. Uh, <laughs> not because they're bad. It's just way raw, you know, adolescent yeah. processing. Um, of course. But the, it does feel like a 17, 18 you know, I'm, I'm thinking, gosh, this needs to happen. This has been such a secret for so long. And there were, again, close friends maybe that knew um, that even we talked in veiled terms. I think even my adolescence was so different now. I don't know what I would have done. Would I have been a teenager coming of age in 2018? You right, know, right. Uh, because we were still... I mean, just to make it through my high school experience, even with those big goals I had, I'm not sure I would have been able to be all those things had I been uh, more out in high school, just bluntly. Um, I think that's changed now. Um, But man, at the time, there were a variety of reasons I wanted to keep things secret. Yeah, Um, I would imagine. I I was even hopeful that, man, maybe if I keep stuff secret and gut it out a little bit more... Uh, maybe I could experience some kind of change and, you know, have a wife, have kids, all this kind of thing. That's still, yeah, thinking about my teenage years, that's still where there was a lot of, whether it's the writing of organizations like Exodus or, you know, similar organizations that were talking about orientation change. 
um, or the, yeah, yeah, just kind of that cluster of ideas. Um, I think those ideas were still prevalent enough when I was a teenager that it's like, well, maybe if I keep it quiet, that for me, but probably that 17, 18, and then especially man going to college. Um, oh, man. Like I've got to, this has to open up, got to share. Who was the first person you told? Do you remember? Uh, honestly, um, I can remember some key people. I don't know if I can remember first. Um, okay. Just because, I mean, I do think with the shame experience, because I've thought about this before, you just want to press so much stuff down and literally forget about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have wondered if one of the reasons it's harder for me. So I have a friend, Kate, who has like a freakish memory, Mike, freak memory. Um <laughs> And it's a beautiful thing. I guess freak might not be a compliment. A stunning memory is what I meant to say. Uh, but <laughs> the level of detail of her memory is impeccable. Um, and I'm often like, why isn't my memory that way? And in one sense, I know memory can vary among people. But in another sense, um, they do say that, man, folks that have big secrets or, you know, whether it's just kind of some early shame things going on, you just get good at forgetting things yourself. Um, and I... Yeah, I don't know if I can remember exactly who the first one is. Yeah, um, no, that's okay. But a key person for me was when I got to IU. Um, Which so is Indiana University. Who, who, who? Sorry, uh, that's what we, we say there. Um, <laughs> I know you're that Buckeye, but still. Uh, <laughs> when I got there, a friend TJ uh, spoke to a friend TJ really openly um, about you know, just my experience, my journey. And he was one of the first um, people I told within like a faith context. So he was a student leader mm. uh, crew, um, so a Christian student organization there. And TJ was one that I, I mean, a key person I would say I told in kind of the journey um, where I was both being honest, which is something I didn't have a whole lot of experience doing. You know, I was much better at hiding. Yeah. Um, so both being honest, which was new to me, but also being honest with a Christian person yeah. uh, was new to me. Because I would say some of the, if there's high school friends that kind of knew or were aware, um, they weren't necessarily my my Christian friends, yeah. if that makes sense. Yep. Of course it does. Christians, Christians are well known for their ability to respond to people not like them with grace and compassion. So, of course, of course, you would keep that quiet. <laughs> oh, my goodness. No, I know. Um, <clears throat> when, when did you tell your parents? Yeah, so they... With, man, like the funny, weird stories we could talk about. <laughs> um, because there were... Maybe I, should put it, I left them some real clues. Um, and, and, in high school, uh, <laughs> it led to some real awkward conversations, if that makes sense, through middle school or high school. So we think it's always been kind of out there uh, with them. <laughs> I think they even, um, maybe like me, I think for a season, uh, we're hoping that maybe there is some kind of change. Maybe you're, you know, you're going to date the right person or the Lord's going to help you find just, you know, one woman that you could be married to and wouldn't that kind of solve things. Um, I think they were in that boat for a while as well, even as I was. Um, and even as I have friends who've walked that journey, I mean, that's a whole other conversation, but it's kind of holding out hope for that. And it's been, 
I mean, I guess it's been an evolving conversation with them now getting to the point where um, me being a single pastor, kind of walking a particular journey that I felt God has for me, they're coming around to and getting all all right with. I mean, always <laughs> have been, to be clear, um, they have always been so all right with me. And I yeah. know my parents love me and I had a rough patch with my dad, uh, sort of some dark ages in there um, with him specifically that now we're able to talk about more openly. And that's beautiful. I mean, one of the great events of my life was uh, when I'm moving out of IU, my dad got to meet my college discipler mentor through crew, a guy named Mark. And I uh, just the fact that they could be in the same space and talking about and I never wanted to ask what went down in that conversation. Uh, but I, knowing my dad, I'm sure he thanked Mark for Mark's influence and that Mark said kind things to him. And I love that, that kind of two um, dudes yeah. that had a whole lot to me, cared about me spiritually, got to have a little time together, um, even though it was very different seasons. But anyway, all that to say, I it's come around. But yeah, with my parents, uh, it's been a, a process for them as well to probably let go of some dreams uh, that sure. they had that I think all parents have for their kids probably let go of some of their dreams and maybe get on board with um, some other dreams that, that I have. Um, yeah. How did you finally put together the faith piece so much so that you're a pastor yeah. and, and the realization that this wasn't going to go away and that this was a fundamental facet of who you were and are. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how did, how did you reconcile all that when, so many seem to either just wander away from faith at all um, or <clears throat> find themselves in communities that are either ruthlessly affirming or ruthlessly non-affirming, but yeah. don't walk in kind of the messiness of the middle ground. Yeah, I, man, I would say a few things have been super helpful. One was finding so many other um Christians who had this as part of their story, who had tried different, you know, whether it's changed things or tried some of the other stuff and it didn't work out. And I think that just friendship with them and hearing their stories saved me from a lot of um, some certain harm or some sort of difficulty in walking that road and being disappointed. So I would say the open wow. stories of others um, was really valuable for me to think through, okay, um, you know, it's, if, change doesn't happen. And I can't pray this away. Um, that's not the worst thing in the world. And I don't need to be so upset or something that it couldn't happy from happen for me as if my faith was weak or something like that. There were just good friends that helped yeah. adjust yeah. some expectations there. Um, but then broadly, and I am again, Mike, by no means a master here, but I would say this is something I think about a lot. And this is a big motivator for me to continue to live um, in the messy middle or in the space in which I live. But I, as I spoke more openly about my specific story with sexuality, and I would talk more about it at different crew events or other churches or things like that, I did start to see that other people who really resonated with my story were just others who were profoundly disappointed um, by their experience um, living and walking this earth as a Jesus follower, mm. you know? Um, so I would share my story. I'd come in, I'd talk about shame and difficulty. And then I would say usually that it's like, and Hey, you know, as best as I understand it now and reading the biblical text, I do see 
kind of this historic tradition, Christian sexual ethic is marriage between a man and a woman. I see that hopping off scripture, scripture, the pages of scripture. I can't help but see it any other way. And so I'm trying to walk this path with Jesus, the costly discipleship and following him, but also upholding what I see to be true in scripture. And I find myself in this weird middle. So I'd share that. Mm. And then there'd be people that come up afterwards saying, hey, I you know, don't necessarily have the same story, but I have this experience or this thing in my life, or I, you know, was never married and I've been single for so long and walking this road and it's been hard to, you know, find support or comfort in the church. And I feel invisible as a single person and no one ever notices me. And I started realizing there's this whole community of people in the church for whom, you know, following Jesus isn't the American dream, uh, you know, or following Jesus isn't just, success after success, victory after victory, but it really is something that feels like, oh, I don't know, dying to self. Maybe we've read that somewhere before. And, and that there were more of us, certainly there's plenty of us in the LGBT community. Yeah, uh, no kidding. More of us. And that there needed to be, I don't know, support or care or voice given to that community. And I think that's what I don't know, kept me engaged in faith, kept me even engaged in church or thinking that church could be a good thing. Cause it's like, mm-hmm. where else do these people go? You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. some of my dearest friends, even in my church here now are, you know, some of the older single women or, you know, folks with disabled children um, or, or whatever it might be, but just people that it's like, this isn't life how I once dreamed. It's the life I have now. And it's the life I love. Yeah. That I see God shaping me through. I mean, it's all those things, but it's the it, fellowship of the disappointed. Yeah, but it hasn't been just glory after glory, success after success, all with a happy bow. And it's like, all right, if that's something that church could be, and if I think that's something that Jesus uniquely equips us to handle well and handle lovingly and be engaged on the long haul with other people, I mean, it's like, okay, I can I can be about this or I can be engaged in this. Yeah. Um, because I see the benefit that it brings to that kind of community. So that's probably what kept me around was recognizing, okay, there's some other people walking difficult paths of discipleship too. And if I just jet out now and say, you know, screw it, I'm young, beautiful, I'm going to go live my life how I want to live it, <laughs> which again, I don't, I don't want to make that caricature as what everyone else is doing in the LGBT thing. But for me, it was like, those were the two options I saw. It's like, because of my scriptural convictions, I have the option to live according to those or to go to other things. It's just like, well, man, I, I think I can embrace costly discipleship and invite others to do the same and be there beside others as they're doing the same. Oh, so good, dude. Yeah. What, what, um, you, so part of, part of why I love hearing you speak about these things is, um, I think there is a, a gaping hole. One of, uh, I'm sure many, um, about how the church. So I've I've served in churches that have singles ministries. I've I've served in churches where you know we break people up by life stage and and those sorts of things. Uh, but you've ranted as we've talked on the phone before, uh, you know about the lack of of support or the lack of uh, compassion or even just awareness of that whole section the section uh, undergoing very costly discipleship. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, both the section undergoing very dis- costly discipleship, but also one of the largest growing demographics in our country. 
So true, true. Yes, single people in church get a get a raw deal in many cases. I think I'm comfortable saying that. What do people say now? Is it changed my mind? Uh, (laughs) Hashtag change my mind. Change my mind about that. Um, I think it's true. I think it's nuts. Uh, It is nuts to me that there aren't more high profile single pastors, authors, writers in the church when Jesus Himself came to Earth and lived as in as true humanity really, for us, and was unmarried himself. And we now have the Church of Jesus Christ, but supposedly all its leaders have to be married folks with children. Um, That is funky to me. And again, I love kids. Um, I was a children's librarian. I love marriage. Uh, I would dance my little booty off at your wedding, Mike, uh, if I would have been there, (laughs) right? I mean, I'm all about it. You would have been 11, but okay. Right, yeah. I'm I'm not mad at marriage. I'm not mad at kids. It's just crazy to me. Um, that we have Jesus's example, that we have the Apostle Paul's example, that we have John Stott's example, yeah, um, that yeah. we have uh, the example of many. I mean, honestly, I read a great history once where people told the history of parachurch college ministries essentially as the story of single women carrying God's mission forward. And it's so compelling. That's and true. I think from my experience, so true. So it's like we have all these single people um, in our church, a part of the church trying to follow Jesus. And I would say just unnoticed, overlooked um, for a long time within the church. And then what gets me a little more fired up is the (laughs) fact that it's not only are we overlooking what I think is a deep theological truth that single people matter, that you're not less human, that you're not by not having a partner missing out on what it means to be fully human. And who will tell you that in our romance saturated culture? Who will tell you that? Um, But I deeply believe it true, and I see it to be true in Scripture. So not only is there a theological issue, I think, by an underdeveloped view of singleness in the church, uh, but missionally. You know, my friends all the time are talking about, we got to reach the next generation, and so we're going to do it by launching a church with a great kids ministry. And again, (laughs) I love kids. Um, I love kids. I can quote Shel Silverstein, a children's poet, about as well as I can quote Scripture. I mean, I love children, but I'm not convinced when our largest growing demographic are single people, when folks are delaying marriage, when there is, I mean, so many cities in our country where, you know, 48%, 40%, I mean, I've got a map that I reference all the time that shows all these cities in our country where there's just high rates of single people. Um, One in seven people lives alone in the United States, so lives by themselves. Eric Klinenberg at NYU professor talks about the rise of people living alone. And so it's like, if that's our time, if that's our place, and we think that Jesus has something to say to all people everywhere, um, what does he have to say to the growing number of single people in the United States in 2018? And I just, I don't hear it, you know? What are, um, what are some of the ways you've seen or felt um, the church, capital C, miss? miss this or communicate unwelcome messages, not even intentionally, because no church is going to say, no, we don't want single people. But they'll say, like I like I like I said, I mean, here's a singles ministry. Oh, if you're single, here, here you go. Yeah. Um, what what are some of the things you've picked up on, overtly or non-overtly, that that communicate that? Yeah. I do think that, and this is I'll share some of my stories and then I will channel other single friends, um, <laughs> and they know who they are. But I do think single ministry or singles ministries that kind of give off the vibe that we're here to help singles meet one another um, 
is a really offensive deal. And certainly that's why some people want to be in singles ministries, help me find the other singles in the church. And I'm not opposed to people meeting. Um, but if that ever comes across as the goal for having that kind of ministry, or even is mentioned as a goal, one of you know three leading goals for having that ministry, it can be offensive, particularly to older singles um, within the church, whether or not they'll come to the single ministry. So, so many single ministries are young singles. Yeah. Um, but the messaging about those those ministries for young folks as place to meet can be offensive to older singles um, that just you feel the devaluation in that claim. Hey, we're making space for the young folks to meet. It's probably a little too late for you. Uh, please keep giving. <laughs> please keep coming. Uh, you're valued here, but we're not interested in helping you cultivate deeper friendship. Um, which even just saying friendship there, I think preaching on friendship is so poor. Modeling a friendship is so poor. Uh, what does it look like? For you know, adult relationships where folks are committed to one another in in serious, deep, meaningful relationship that's not you know mm. part partner spouse to spouse. Um, I mean, we have a a friendship, you know, a lack of friendship epidemic in our culture broadly and within our churches. I would say. I mean, I also feel it too. I think it's you know, like we've said. I say like we've said, like you've said so many times on this <laughs> podcast. Uh, when you don't have certain people in the room, you just don't even realize what's missing. I would say some church messaging is awful when it comes to single people, and it would just need slight tweaks to be better. So an example that I just recently got off the phone talking about, so it's fresh. So we're doing you know, financial literacy stuff within our church, and it's great, and we want people to know God's wisdom for money, right? Well, so much of the yeah. Christian resources around financial literacy are always, you know, change your family tree. Um, that's what one very popular financial guru says a lot, right? Do this so you can change your family tree. Well, what if I'm, you know, the last beautiful flower on my family tree? <laughs> uh, there's still, I believe, because I love the Bible, there's still some God, you know, ordained wisdom for me as it relates to finances. And there's still some good I can do in the world with what I've been entrusted, but it's not going to be changing my family tree necessarily. Right. Um, and that's, to me, that's subtle messaging that can shift. There's other ways to get people interested in finances or get people interested in, you know, serving within the church or just other classes. But there's, there's weird language things that I probably am more sensitive to um, that get under my skin a little more. And, and then I always have to remind myself, well, there was probably no single person in the room when this was written, no single person in the communication department, no one in a copy, <laughs> you know, but I mean, but let's be That's honest, true. church staff pages. Um, yeah, it probably never crossed anyone's mind along the way, uh, when a slight tweak could make all the difference. Um, so man, I just do, uh, I feel it a lot. Again, it feels like another one of those, um, things that it's probably never explicitly said, although I know some churches are pretty explicit about their <laughs> you know, belief that everyone needs to be married. Um, but let's say in more, you know, Jesus-centered, Bible-based, actually Bible-based churches that recognize that there are single vocations and married vocations in those spaces, I'd say it's usually just a, probably a, a thoughtfulness around language or practice that probably stems from not having any single people on staff or in a leadership role. Yeah. Um, that makes all the difference. I mean, I well now I'm I'm mid ramp my go, go. But when was the last time you saw a single elder in a church, an unmarried elder? Yeah, and no, just, that's I mean, exactly right. Could Jesus be an elder in his own church? You know, could Paul <laughs> be an elder in the churches to whom he was writing? Come on, um, I just that's another one that gets me all the time. That it's surely 
Surely there is in the United States, in so many churches, godly, older people, I'll say, but older men, if your church needs just men, great, but godly older men that can lead your church that were never married or that aren't married now. I mean, that has to exist, right? Yeah. I believe that. Um, but I just never see them in spots either. So anyway, it's, it is something that gets, grinds my gears. <laughs> well, you were at, was it a church planners, uh, evaluation? What was, t- tell, tell us that story. Yeah, I, I, I have been evaluated for church planting. Um, <laughs> And it was wonderful. I mean, it was a really uh, affirming process at the end, but it, it really there was a lot of uh, just my writing to get in there and recognizing sort of the culture. And and honestly, some of the recruitment pitches that come up in church plant world, you'll see them, <laughs> you know, soliciting applications by saying, we're looking for, you know, a lead planting couple or ideally a lead planting couple would have, you know, these qualifications. And again, I love I love marriage. I love couples, but it's just like lead planting couple. Like, what is the New Testament chapter and verse on that? Right. You know, right? Um, and it's and I get what they're saying. Well, married I, people don't struggle with sexuality. Marriage solves all sexual problems. I'm I'm sorry you didn't get the memo on that. We just missed that in my seminary class. <laughs> I got screwed, Mike. No one told me that. Okay, well that would have solved it because it, yeah. it's that lead planting couple language. Uh, was just language for me that was like, hey, I get what you're going at. And you're right. If you are married and planning a church, you probably both need to be invested in it. Yeah. Certainly, you know, yeah. if that's what you're trying to say. But even there, you know, I think we need more single pastors in the U.S. We need more single church planters, especially if everyone wants to plant in these urban devos. And that's where everyone wants to go. No one's there at a church planning assessment to do a rural plant right. you know, or something they are. They want to take Chicago. They want to take New York for Jesus. Um, which Fort is Wayne. Great. Love it. Yeah. And I'm not trying to write, yeah, Fort Wayne, the Paris, right? But that's everyone's goal while they're there. Um, and it's just like, do you realize that the majority of the people to whom you might be ministering to in that setting will be single? Yeah. And that it would be advantageous to have a single pastor there. I mean, I was just in Berlin and it was refreshing. I was in Berlin talking to a pastor there. And the pastor said in the presence of his wife, I wish I were still single because we have so many single people here. And it wasn't weird and it wasn't mean. And he's not saying, I wish I was unmarried, but it felt like he actually understood what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians when he says, I wish you could be as I am because I'm able to do ministry well. He said, I used to be able to connect so well with our singles. And again, glad I got married. He was saying, and not, you know, trying to impugn my wife in any way, yeah. but it was just refreshing to hear someone that seemed to have a biblical ethic and missiology and understanding of, gosh, I, I could be a better shepherd to my people yeah. to, or I still to share their life stage and circumstance. Yes. I feel that way about being skinny. I wish yeah. I were still skinny so I could reach the skinny people. We I can do. pray for that, Mike. We can just. I, I haven't. I haven't. Um, uh, so, so you're a pastor and, and, and I'm assuming at this point, because you're announcing all of that, I mean, your church is aware, the church leadership is aware, all of that's aware. Any weirdness there or any, uh, extra suspicion or any of that stuff? I would say not from my immediate church, really. It's usually... If, if people are suspicious or have weird feelings, it's usually folks that aren't 
immediately connected with me, if that yeah. makes sense. So well, to be course, more specific, I, yes, when I applied to come here and work at this particular church, you better believe I shared, you know, the, the full story and the little application there. And, <laughs> uh, because I didn't want to be, you know, I didn't want to be surprised on the back end, like, oops, never mind, this won't work out. And they've been excellent. And all my, you know, my bosses know um, at every level, right? so my immediate kind of campus pastor, one of those multi-site churches all the way up to the top, people are aware. And that's great. And they are, they work with me. They see me, you know, day in, day out, wonderful there. And I would say the same thing, our little downtown campus at Christ Community um, is also a place where I haven't felt judge suspicious. Now, I will say there, I haven't necessarily led with my story there at the downtown campus. So I've spoken openly about it in other venues. A lot of folks have found my, you know, testimonies or different podcast things or talks online. Um, But it's not like the main, the main feature at the downtown campus or really at all in the church. I mean, we're doing other stuff as a church, but I'd say there in that local setting, people have been outstanding, supportive, I mean, if anything, people say, gosh, we're so glad to have you as a pastor, but never, what the heck. Uh, but if people do get weirded out um, or have kind of questions that I think might be rooted more in in fear or suspicion than in anything more sincere or noble, um, yeah. it yeah. tends to be folks that aren't, aren't around, aren't immediately present, don't get to see it lived out day in and day out, and then... Um, yeah, and then make some assumptions from a distance. But but here's the thing I'm thinking as you're as you're answering. I'm like, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, so do we make anybody else live that way? So here's the inappropriately divorced pastor. Here's the pastor that looks at porn. Come on. Here's the greedy pastor. Here's the narcissistic pastor. I've been I've been all of those. Yeah, <laughs> and no one. <clears throat> ever made me have to uh, make sure I, everyone was aware of my story. I mean, it's just, it's still, you know, even asking the question, I hesitated because I'm like, ah, this feels yucky uh, because there's still this big double standard. Because what I'm trying to get at, Tyler, that's so interesting to me is is I think for a lot of of traditional conservative church folk, when it when it comes to, to men and women who are same-sex attractive, there's either the shut it down, ignore it, don't talk about it, get married, you know, pray through it, that mode. Yes. Or there's the, oh, well, then you must just be this immoral, you know, pagan that's going to fry in a frying pan and, you know, whatever. The, these unholy, you're an abomination yeah. kind of. And, and it and, and so he, I'm trying to like, so Nate, who's a mutual friend, yeah, um, presented this thoughtful well, but what if there's another category to this conversation of people because of their biblical convictions who choose to walk in celibacy and yet still desire to experience affection, companionship, deep yeah. friendship? Um, uh, shouldn't they be blessed in this endeavor in the way that we would bless anybody else who desires to walk in obedience? The thing that I'm fascinated is this is a new category yes. for, for people. And, um, and, and there's a, I think there's a deep, I know it's true for me, so I'm projecting, but there's a deep lack of awareness about how to walk well. Um, because on on the one hand I can hear people saying, yeah, but aren't you experiencing the same cost of discipleship? Everyone else does. 
right? So I'm married, right? Can you can you hear somebody saying that? People have said that, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so I can hear people say that. Yep. Well, yeah, you're disappointed. I'm disappointed too. My marriage, yeah, I'm married. My marriage is is horrible. So so I'm right at uh, right there with you. What just for a slight rabbit trail? What what do you say in those moments to people who would just say, well, yeah, of course you're struggling the same way everyone struggles. So why should you get special, you know, treatment, recognition, whatever? Yeah. Um, I usually don't say much because I want <laughs> the discipline, of, you know, not, not always having to have the last word and shutting it down. But in my heart, maybe what I think, um, is that I, I hear that, um, and it is true that there are so many other people with difficult stories in church. And honestly, when I talk to so many LGBT Christians that I know, I try to remind them of that, that we, uh, yeah, we've got a real difficult journey, many of us, because of course I'm in a lot of these communities, right? Of mm-hmm. people all trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus well in light of this shared experience. Uh, we got a real difficult experience, but there's other people with difficult experience. That is true. But man, I just don't think people have any idea um, when they say that the, I don't know, I don't want to say the total denial of a dream. Um, but Mm. in a culture that certainly glorifies romance and does suggest, and not just in a culture, in a church, it does suggest your best partner, support, uh, person for accomplishing what God has called you to do in the world Uh, The best support you're going to get to do your God-given reason for being on earth is going to come through one particular person to whom you're married. Um, When that is so much of a message that's given, and I understand that marriages can be difficult and complicated. We've got difficult marriages in our church. But when that's the message that, yeah, God's called you to do something great in the world, and he's given you a spouse to support you in that endeavor, uh, when you feel like you're precluded from even exploring that kind of a relationship, uh, that is a... I would argue from my experience again, and I don't want to ever get in a pain Olympics, you know, or a difficulty Olympics, but that is a unique <laughs> kind of pain. Um, and that is a unique cross to bear to say, because I'm convinced Jesus is who he says he is. And because I've read these texts and landed in this conviction, and this is what I think Jesus says about human design. Um, I'm going to walk this really, really difficult journey that's so counter to everything my culture says I need for fulfillment and my church says. Oh, that's good. One of my mission. That is a unique kind of pain that I would argue many married people haven't experienced. Tyler, um, Tyler. But I usually don't say that to them in the moment. I'm just like, oh, <laughs> your perspective. <laughs> Thanks um, for <laughs> but, but bro, oh, thank you. I mean, that right there, that five minutes, um, that's really powerful, man. Thank you. I mean, that's a huge... Yeah. Um, I don't even know how to, how to articulate. I'm just grateful that you'd share it. And so articulately the, the thing that, because I, I, I feel, and again, I'm, I'm old and late to this whole party, but, um, it, it does seem to me and I can't articulate why, but it does seem to me it's a unique thing. And it's different from just heterosexual people being celibate, uh, or single, like that for some, yes, the death of marriage, the death of the possible. I mean, we have some, we have a couple of just dear, dear single friends and it is brutal. And it is, yeah. it is being, cru- you are being crucified as you walk through this. Um, uh, but it, it, it does seem like it's, it's a, it's a unique kind of thing. And so 
Um, I'm just anyway. I'm I'm just saying. Well, thank you I for also, sharing that. Yeah, if I'm going to get even more transparent, I also think one of the things that make it different is the, and maybe this is just me and my experience, but kind of the I could if I wanted to, but I won't, uh, uh, because thinking of some of the single people that I know in our church that, again, it's been super difficult and wished you could be married, but not married. In many cases, they they tried dating and it just didn't work out for certain reasons with different folks. And now it's just a disappointment that I never found the person. For so many gay single people in the church or gay celibate folks trying to walk this journey, it's that I I never even got the chance, you know, put me in coach. Well, I never even got the chance to put in because I said no before that, because yeah. You know, why would I even date if I think that Jesus isn't cool at the end of it? So it's, I think there's just a, a different kind of headspace that says, I've said no so early in even the process of pursuing a partner. And I, and I, it would have worked out if I could have, but I said no. And what if, you know, I think yeah. just that kind of space, I don't know if I'm articulating that clearly. No, it's, it's, That's there's still I, the possibility. Yeah. Well, there's still the possibility. And it's just like, but then I was prevented from the possibility. Right. You know, I mean, I think that's the angst. Or if I, I mean, I really lean into the Psalms sometime and get a little angry with the Lord and, you know, write, write that kind of stuff. Yeah. But it is the, like, I feel hemmed in from even exploring that possibility, you know, and that's frustrating sometimes. And again, oh, yeah. I, for, I know there's all kinds of listeners here, the critical listeners. Yes. I'm convinced of the traditional sexual ethic. I hate having to say that. Yeah. The Bible, I, all that authority, you know, yeah, sure. But I get mad sometimes and I feel hemmed in. Um, held in from even exploring that. It's like, what gives Lord, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that's to another kind of the pain. It's like, I'm, yeah, I'm preempting things at such an early stage and finding a partner. I'm saying no thanks. Um, and that it just, yeah, the loss there feels really immense. Yeah. Oh, I can't, I can't even imagine my friend. I cannot even imagine. Um, but I'm so, so grateful you have helped me. Um, I don't know, just, uh, be, uh, aware, um, uh, yeah. of this whole, I mean, seriously, as I've sat in so many large church conversations, these aren't conversations that are being had. Um, no, 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 not even remotely. Not. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> that's why, no, 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 bro. No, don't be sorry. <laughs> that's why I was so eager to, to get you on the, on the podcast and kind of talk um, online about the many things we've talked about offline. Well, and if I could say one more thing, Mike, I'm of sorry. Course. No, no, don't apologize. You Go see this little fire in my face. I, uh, <laughs> I also think we need this conversation to happen for many reasons, but one of the reasons it needs to happen is I years ago was told by a mentor, uh, that they said, your joy, Tyler will be your strongest apologetic for the gospel being true. And the fact that you're walking a difficult journey with joy, that's going to be the biggest thing that helps people realize Jesus is real. Uh, he is who he says he is. He loves us. His design for the world is good. The fact that he would create an institution like the church that in its best moments does care for people of all backgrounds and varieties, single and married, rich and poor, young and old, um, well and sick, all of that in the same. It's like it's a brilliant design. The church is a family. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, but your joy will be your strongest apologetic. Oh, and I God. just feel like for years, particularly LGBT folks, because there's been no conversation around this, like you said, I've sat in big church settings and no one talks about it. We've had to lead with a more uh, 
I don't want to say angry, but like a feisty, uh, you know, an activist type voice has had to be our voice um, just to be heard or just to be noticed or just to get it on the church agenda. Um, and I think just now, again, living in this little world of Christians trying to kind of live out this this type of discipleship, just now we're just beginning to be able to write about the joy that we experience, the good parts of life, the happiness that still comes in the midst of singleness. Uh, yeah, the joys of celibacy and friendship and diving into that. It feels like we're just now free enough, we're able enough to write about the joy. And that's what gets me excited moving forward, yeah. being a part of this little movement is like, okay, finally, you know, hopefully we have a hearing somewhere, people are listening. Now we can actually discuss what life well lived in this story, you know, a, a particular kind of single people within the church. Uh, now we can finally write how that looks in a good way or in a happy way. But we just, for many reasons, I think that hasn't been able to happen yet. And I'm excited for folks to get that joyous vision of what, yeah, contented, flourishing, supported single life could be. But but see, here's, but Tyler, but Tyler, it's impossible to be joyful if you don't have all your personal needs met. That's, so, mm. so I'm sitting here and I'm listening to you and, and here's the inner dialogue. The inner dialogue is, you know, Jesus wouldn't have called this special Christianity. He would have just called this Christianity. Right? Uh-huh. The fact, the fact that American Christians, and I'm, I, and the reason I'm saying this is because I'm this way, uh, cannot fathom following Jesus in such a costly manner. But that's what just following Jesus was. It wasn't radical. That was just what what following regular normal following was. That you that you lay down your dreams, you lay down your ambitions, you lay down and you pick up whatever it is that God has laid before you. And, um, you know, we call that special Christianity these days, but back then that was just, that was just what it meant to follow Jesus. And so the, 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 the idea of joy in the midst of health crisis, that's, that's, that's tough. Joy in the midst of financial ruin, that's tough. Joy in the midst of uh, family conflict, tough. But, but sex is its own thing in our culture. So joy in the midst of non-fulfillment uh, that I think that might be the one most difficult to understand of all of them. Yeah. You yeah. know, so man, amen and amen. Tyler, you might, I could take up an offering after that sermon you just did. What? Dude, <laughs> no, I'm just reflecting on your words, dude. Holy cow. Great. That's just Christianity. I need that as a tattoo, you know, come on. <laughs> well, cause I, cause I sit and I think about my, uh, walk with Jesus, and and I'm sitting here going, okay. Um, there are areas of disappointment, of course, but but I haven't I haven't striven for joy in those areas. What I've what I've striven for is, okay, God, fix those. Yep. Um, uh, I, I've not, you know, I'm sitting here and I, my heart's going out to you, but then there's this other voice in me going. He's just following Jesus. Like, like Ooh, this is yeah. what it this is what it is, you know? And 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 in some cases it's harder than other cases. But if I'm not experiencing in some place that same kind of death to self, you have to wonder if I'm really if if it's Jesus I'm really following, right? I mean, you have to just be like, okay. I mean, the closest I can come, Tyler, is having a, a little, a sweet little dude I talk about all the time with special needs. And the death of what I didn't even realize was the the dream of a perfect family and expectations for 
uh, kids. And, and instead, I have this just incredible relationship with this old guy. But it's been a dying to that. And th- that's not changing. It's not going anywhere. He's, I mean, he's with us forever. Yeah. And, and, um, and yet, and yet it, that's, that's Jesus following, is it not? I mean, that's, that's the picture. And so anyway, Tyler, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, re- I'm just outwardly processing on the genius stuff you were saying, because, um, because I think what Nate did was, was incredible theologically but I wanted, I've just so admired the way you are in this space, the way that you are unapologetically, um, uh, unabashedly trying to follow Christ as a gay man yeah. and and someone who's not ashamed by that or not silenced by that. Um, and in church leadership. I mean, I just, that's that's where I just go, okay, that's awesome. That That's interesting to me. And so, man, thank you for sharing so much. I really appreciate it. I really do, bud. No, it's been a gift to be here. Yeah. What, uh, where can people find you? Um, online? Kansas City. Uh, yes. <laughs> don't, don't come find me. That would be scary. Uh, I, uh, in person, I mean. Online, yeah, I guess I'm on the Twitter uh, at Tyler Cherneski, C-H-E-R-N-E-S-K-Y. Um, you are on the Twitter. Living my life and tweeting away. Yeah. And you're very dressy in your Twitter profile pic. Thank you. Yes. I try to live every day or dress every day as if I might at some point be photographed because you never know. (laughs) And so it's just better. And clearly I can tell you do too, Mike, you're always in black, uh, always ready for the camera. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's so good. So good. Well, Vox, um, we'll, we'll let you go. Thank you, Tyler, for uh, your kindness and honesty and so good, man. Such good stuff. To the rest of the community, love hearing your perspectives on these things. So grateful for all the emails rolling in about some of the stuff we've been talking about, and particularly for those who disagree. Love yeah. that. We want to be that kind of place where the, there's just permission to, to wrestle, to walk, to whatever. So, um, and until next time, my brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give you peace. Thank you, Tyler. And until next time, friends. Bye.